The pace of change today can be overwhelming. What's most important to pay attention to if you want to be creative, successful, innovative? I'm Bob Safian, host of Rapid Response. Rapid Response is a podcast that cuts through the noise, featuring candid conversations twice a week with top business leaders navigating real-time challenges. Leaders like Airbnb's Brian Chesky, the WNBA's Kathy Engelbart, and Khan Academy's Sal Khan. From the team behind the award-winning Masters of Scale podcast comes Rapid Response. Search wherever you get your podcasts to listen and subscribe. Uh, Senators, I attend the Senate in conformity with your notice for the purpose of joining with you for the trial of the President of the United States. Hi, it's me, Katerina. Current events move so fast that President Trump's impeachment trial in January already feels like it happened ages ago. This is a unique responsibility, which the framers of our Constitution knew that the Senate, and only the Senate, could handle. But it was a thoroughly modern affair, the first impeachment trial of the 21st century. I am here today because I love my country and our Constitution. For three weeks, senators were on Capitol Hill following a strict list of decorum guidelines. One of the most prominent was no use of phones or electronic devices in the chamber. Well, my first thought is, oh my God, here we are. We're going to be totally disconnected from the world because it's kind of like our umbilical cord to the outside world. Senator Chris Van Hollen from Maryland was very active during the trial. He talked to us midway through the trial about some of the challenges and the benefits. We did invent uh, a, a system of communication that kind of works, which is we have pages on the floor of the Senate and they can send in notes. Uh, you've got circle <laughs> yes, circle no. So whoever came up with the rule uh, was very prescient because it does make you focus on what we should be focused on. Not using a device for weeks seemed unthinkable, not only to the senators, but also to their cellular providers. I got this uh, notice that said, uh, your usage uh, is way down this week. It's like they were reaching out and saying, are you still alive? (laughs) Are you okay? (laughs) Are you you still with us? Is everything okay? (laughs) This digital sequestration for the U.S. Senate is what kicked off this episode It got us thinking about the big question, how should screens exist in our lives? Since COVID began, we're spending a crazy amount of time in front of our screens. By some reports, even 40% of waking hours. Pre-COVID, the average American spent more than five hours a day on a smartphone, and this has skyrocketed. We'll talk with a media theorist, an experimental psychologist, and even a restaurateur who have their own perspectives on the benefits and the drawbacks of digital sequestration and digital saturation. I'm Katerina Fake. How is technology impacting our humanity? It's the question of our times. I made a discovery that was literally unimagined by any human being. There's a sort of a creepiness where somebody is really mistaking the tech for being real. Trust me, that stuff is going on. Penetrating the consciousness in the technology space and the public. 
This is a show where we take a single technology and ask what's its greatest potential. I mean, really exciting things. Enormously complex. And what could possibly go wrong? We're just looking at each other thinking, oh my God. The future is in our hands. I'm honestly sort of on the fence. Our boldest new technologies can help us flourish as human beings. Now it's accelerating. Absolutely. Or destroy the very thing that makes us human. I, I don't have any doubt. We have to become more informed. Because what I like to say is any technology in human history is neutral. It's how we decide to to use it. Failure is not an option. It is not an option. This is Should This Exist? Hey, it's Katarina, and we're back. Take a journey with me back a few months to a time when indoor dining in close quarters felt perfectly unremarkable. We're headed for some Italian food in north-central Queens at Il Triangolo. Its front entrance is at the tip of a wedge at a busy intersection. Oh, here he comes. Mario Gigliotti is the owner. Hi, guys. Come on in. Go ahead. Hi, Mario. Hi, nice how to are meet you? you. How are you? Good. Katarina. Katarina. Yeah. Spelled the Italian way. This is your these, cell phone these policy. Are, these are my policies that we have for a restaurant. At this restaurant, the food won't come out unless your cell phone goes away. Mario's no phones policy is on a plaque right as you walk in the door. And, uh, so actually, somebody made that for me because I had it like on a piece of cardboard. The guy that has a printing place, he sent it to me via, via mail. He goes, this is a gift from me to you. I couldn't, I couldn't stand seeing that cardboard, he goes. So it's uh, off the table at all times, must be on silent, and all phone calls outside. Basically, you know, something simple. Maybe Mario Gigliotti is onto something. Maybe we all need places to go to get off our phones. We're all craving it. How can we go about changing our relationship with our smartphones? Why did you implement the policy? Because when I first opened up the restaurant, uh, uh, I was uh, noticing that people weren't paying attention to themselves, to the restaurant itself, the atmosphere, and, uh, and the food also. Like we would say the specials and they were like paying no mind what I was saying. Take longer for them also to order. It was like all a combination of everything. Yeah. So now, yeah, the people uh, kind of yeah, like, how uh, people, how well, they, respond? They, re they respond uh, very well to it. You know, there's 99% uh, that really like it. I'm a cell phone fanatic. I mean, I work on Wall Street. I work on the floor of New York Stock Exchange. People are constantly calling me all day long. Everything is a five-alarm fire. And uh, what I like about Mario's policy is that when I come here now, I don't use the cell phone. I enjoy the one-on-one -on -one with my girl. You actually have a conversation with the person in front of you. No phone. It just enhances all the flavors, enhances the whole experience. And before you know it, what turns out to be a two-hour meal is now four hours later. And you're, you're happy. You walk out, you're happy instead of saying, what did I do? <laughs> for the patrons of Il Triangolo, putting down the phone makes for a better meal. But technology has wormed its way pretty deeply into our lives. What don't I use it for? Uh, work, obviously, uh, pretty much constantly, and uh, morning, noon, and night for both work and personal. And if you're the parent of a teenager, you see the impact of smartphones on them. Or do you? 
Yeah, I would love to minimize it. I just think it's really difficult. Like, I would love to throw my phone in the Hudson River yeah. <laughs> and just like not have to deal with it. But I just think I need it for so many different things. Talk of the negative effects abound. Sleep problems, behavior problems, education problems, violence, obesity. But our understanding of how exactly our relationship with our phones is affecting us is actually very limited. We've done a lot of research, but can it be trusted? There's a huge amount of emotion in this space. And I think naturally, if you're the person saying, we don't actually know that much yet, you're often kind of going against what a lot of people believe. My job as a scientist is to evaluate the evidence and to stand up for that evidence. And so there's just no good evidence. Dr. Amy Orban is a research fellow at the University of Cambridge, specializing in how technology use affects adolescent mental health. She started having doubts about the validity of research when she was an undergraduate. It felt like it was written by people who didn't really know very deeply what they were talking about, just because probably the kind of age difference meant that most of the senior researchers writing about social media didn't actually use it as, for example, a teenager. And I felt like I could offer a better perspective, and that, that kind of led me down this path. I first got my iPhone, you know, I was in middle school. My parents were so concerned about the screen time I'm using, saying I'm, like, addicted, and it's this new thing. And then 10 years later, everybody in my family, my parents included, are using their phone a couple hours a day. But now everybody's just kind of let themselves get consumed with it. Amy says it's complicated. It's very easy to point out the harms of technology, especially now. It feels like smartphones became both ubiquitous and indispensable almost overnight. But this isn't the first time humanity's clutched its pearls about a new danger to society. This has been going on for centuries. And um, the, the ancient Greeks were worried about writing. Um, the Victorians were worried about romance novels corrupting brains and um, kind of young women. And, that, and, you know, just in the 1940s, people were worried about radio and, and radio addiction. And we see... Oftentimes, the harm's a lot more clear than maybe the benefits. I think has a sort of evolutionary <laughs> benefit in that we probably are, are programmed to be cautious when things kind of become popular and, and to really put our concerns first. Amy Urban says that we're talking about a complex network of factors as we evaluate both harms and benefits. It's satisfying to make sweeping statements about technology, but the reality is that details matter a lot. Of all the things we can do, for example, on our phones, 20 minutes on a smartphone could be 20 minutes watching YouTube videos, it could be 20 minutes looking at self-harm images, it could be 20 minutes Skyping your grandmother, it could be 20 minutes doing mindfulness meditation, you know, it could be 20 minutes um, doing Sudoku's. Texting, um, communicating with friends, family members. Messages, FaceTime, calls, email, weather, maps. Restaurants, things to do, places to go, directions. And then I watch a lot of YouTube people, and I watch uh, video game streamers, you know? So then we need to think about, well, if time spent is is not a good measure anymore, then what should we be measuring? And we should probably be measuring, you know, what what people are actually doing. What are the motivations? How regular are they doing these activities? Are they doing them in bursts? Are they, you know, doing them with extreme regularity? But to actually collect that sort of data, we 
as researchers need to have access to tech company data. And at the moment, technology companies, naturally data is their, their pride and joy. Data are their, their gemstones. They don't want to share those readily with, for example, academic researchers. Until Facebook, Google, and the large gaming companies share more of the data they've already collected, Amy says there's a limit to what we can know. You know, this is a huge problem. We need to figure out a way to ethically um, and collaboratively share, you know, not, not all the data that technology companies own, but those crucial bits of data that are important for us to assess and evaluate really important societal questions. But I guess what I just wanted to say is that my opinion isn't that none of technology is harmful. Just like my opinion is not that, you know, none of it will be beneficial. My opinion is that once we actually start disentangling the different uses and the different users, we will find, you know, a probably specific design features and specific uses of social media that negatively affect specific users, just like we will find specific uses and designs of social media that will positively affect specific users. So I think it's just that nuance is often missing in that conversation. Coming up, we talk with a media theorist who says it's time to get intensely enlightened about not just technology, but about human nature. It's time to defend and rebuild our social systems. And the easiest way to understand and change our predicament is to recognize that being human is a team sport. So here we are, this is Queens College. Hi, it's Katerina, back with Should This Exist? Just before the pandemic shut down college campuses around the world, I paid a visit to the student center at Queens College. It was lunch hour with hundreds of undergrads in a sprawling space called the Q Cafe. But yeah, Queens College, it's part of CUNY. Queens College is part of CUNY, the City University of New York, that includes 25 campuses across New York City's five boroughs. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? I'm here to see Douglas Rushkoff, who's a media studies professor and grew up about three miles from here. Keep it real, come back to Queens. So it was a a good thing. I thought I was going to come do the university thing. I didn't want to become an ivory tower Mm -hmm. kind of person, even though those campuses are nice. Doug has been a prolific lecturer around the world, a television documentarian, and author of more than a dozen books on media, technology, and culture. I do not see a single person without a screen. Yeah. Not a single one. They use those. It's like instead of books. <laughs> so they're all yeah. doing homework and studying and doing research. His most recent book is called Team Human and is based on his podcast of the same name. It's about rehumanizing technology and reconnecting people, especially his students at school. Are you finding them to be uh, super engaged? Are they on their screens all the time? All right, so the undergraduates, most of them are, are truly working-class Americans. They are the, the first person in their family to go to college ever. And CUNY and Queens in particular is known as like an institution that has the highest percentage of people to move from, you know, one socioeconomic class to another as a result of, of coming here. But they are, uh, they're, they're not bookish, but they're smart and smart in a different way way and appreciative in a way. But, you know, I taught some classes at at some schools that should remain nameless, but I taught adjunct at some elite schools. And 
we're having a class discussion at one of them, and a kid raises his hand and said, well, look, why should we listen to you? You ended up a teacher. Isn't that interesting, yeah. right? And I was like, wow, what a privileged little jackass, right? To think that I'm even here for the money, right? I'm here to to share with the next generation. I can right. make more money writing my books or making TV, doing something else sure. um, than adjuncting at a, at a college. And um, that would never happen somewhere like here. Doug Rushkoff has made a career out of thinking deeply about the impact of technology and new media on culture, business, and the economy. He's coined terms you've probably used, such as viral media, social currency, and digital natives. Team Human, his latest book, is practically bursting at the seams with his passion and insight. It reads almost like a manifesto about how humans are social creatures who need to work together. We flew out here, actually, in order to see you and sit with you. And oh. I thought that that was a really important part of actually doing this interview. It is. It's it's the great conspiracy. You know, literally, conspire, breathe together. In a time of COVID, this is literally true. Breathing together sounds super dangerous. But the kind of danger Doug is talking about is danger to power structures when human beings connect face-to-face. You know, my eyes see your eyes. I see your pupils getting bigger, your micro-nodding motions, and my mirror neurons fly. My my oxytocin goes through my bloodstream. We start to have a bonding, and we establish rapport. And then Mm -hmm. rapport is the precursor then to solidarity and working together and doing everything else. Exactly. And without rapport... I mean, you know how depressed and sad and lonely and atomized and powerless and reactive we are? All the companies are spending trillions of dollars to to just talk to our brainstem, to get us to react. Our most primitive emotions, fear, loneliness, anxiety, are lodged in our brainstem. And Doug says tech companies, in the quest for our endless attention, will trigger whatever it takes to get it and keep it. And you know what, actually, this this show came out of? We had a conversation with Chris Van Hollen, the senator from Maryland, and he was in the impeachment hearings, and they had removed everybody's devices from them. And so we were very interested in this idea of digital sequestration. When is it appropriate? How is it done? Does it change you when you are, frankly, forced away from your devices? Yeah. I mean— The Israelites figured this out in the desert, right? When they sat down to make the new rules of of the new world, uh, the first thing they came up with was the Sabbath. If you spend all your time engaged in working or production or utility value, you lose the sense that, like Mr. Rogers would say, you're okay just the way you are. And to have one day of Sabbath to say, I don't have to do anything today. As a matter of fact, I'm not even allowed to do anything today. Right. I'm you know, forbidden from doing anything. Right. It's the only way you can convince yourself to do it. And and everybody else is too, so no one's going to get ahead of me today. No one's going to, you know, make extra candles or something today, and, you know. And, 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 Shear another sheep. Right, exactly. <laughs> Doug Rushkoff says the real impetus for his Team Human campaign began when he was on a panel years ago with computer scientist and futurist Ray Kurzweil who is a key figure in the singularity movement. Among his many predictions, Kurzweil says that by 2029, computers will have human-level intelligence. And he was making this case about how humanity has to accept that, you know... It's It's obsolete. 
that we're obsolete, right? That we've got to migrate into the digital space and pass the torch to our, our computer successors and just fade into the background. And I made an impassioned case for no, but human beings are special. We're weird. We can embrace paradox. What computers can't do, you know, we can watch a David Lynch movie, you know, not understand what it means and still experience that as pleasurable. I mean, we deserve a place in the digital future. And he said, uh, oh, Rushkoff, you're just saying that because you're human, right? Like it was hubris. And that's when I said, right, Tim, it was on, on CNN. I don't think they kept this part. And I said, fine, guilty. I'm on team human, right? And that was where the meme started. That was, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. So who is the villain in this media environment? If we had to pick one? Um, um, so many. Um, who, who are they? I mean, the, the, the villains are... The, the venture capitalists, I would say, because what they do is they'll take a kid, it's like a 19-year-old kid in college who has a really interesting idea for a platform or a technology or an app, and they'll say, hey, kid, come over here. Here's $100 million. Now pivot away from what you were thinking, that app you were going to connect all of humanity, but pivot away from that and maybe connect all humanity, but take all their data, you know, or don't really connect all humanity on all these levels, but just this one. And these kids, they're 19, 20 years old. They, they don't have myelin sheaths on their, on their, their, the dendrites in their neocortex yet. They haven't developed impulse control. They're not fully formed. Right. And you end up uh, adopt, they end up adopting those values, the values of capital. And they, they haven't been educated. They haven't read Adam Smith. They don't understand that the factors of production are land, labor, and capital. So they ignore land and labor. The only one who has a seat at the table is capital. And we end up destroying neighborhoods, destroying um, uh, human minds, destroying uh, human society, destroying democracy, destroying the taxicab business, destroying journalism. And all in a, in a kind of a scorched earth, clear channel style, you know, uh, uh, quest for monopoly. And Stuart Brand said it. We are as gods. We may as well start acting that way. And I think that's a problem. We are not as gods. We're, we might as well get good at it. Yeah. Is what he said. <laughs> oh, we're getting good at it. Yeah. Get good at it. You're never going to be good at it being a god. We're humans. We're humans. If there's something that's God, the, the closest we're going to be is the collective human project, you know, but certainly not, you know, the no, the, no. the guy in charge of Google or something. Or, or the say, black box that's actually writing all of the Google and Facebook al algorithms. Right. Those engineers. Right. And we can't see what's in the black box because it's proprietary, exactly. but it's, we're going to let it run our world. It's private and it's running everything. Yeah. Right. But I don't generally believe in evil so much as as... There, there's an, a profound ignorance of human value, you know, that we've, we've adopted the industrial age value system, that human mm -hmm. beings are only valuable insofar as they can provide utility value to the market. And that's a misconception. And once we digitize that, once we empower computers with that logic, say human beings are only powerful as so much as they can help, you know, grow the market, then we're teaching computers how to really screw us up. Yeah. So that's why I'm on my little mission of, you know, my Mr. Rogers mission. You're okay. You're a human. Douglas Rushkoff's Mr. Rogers mission filled me with such hope when I first heard it. 
But since that in-person conversation, the global pandemic has forced human beings away from each other. And often the digital space is the only place they can come back together. I'm thinking of the stories of people dying in hospitals, having to say goodbye to their loved ones on Zoom or FaceTime. It feels like such a poor replica of humanity, but it's also the only one we have. What is this doing to us? And what is the alternative? Coming up on Should This Exist, a whole town in West Virginia that lives alongside the world's largest telescope. But you can't make a call on your cell phone and you can't text on it either. It's urban scale digital sequestration. And it's an experiment that's about to put the town's residents to a whole new test. Hi, welcome back. We end this episode on digital sequestration in a place known as the quietest town in America, population 143. Greenbank, West Virginia, where cell phones and wireless devices are banned. But it's also a place with some of the most cutting-edge technology anywhere. Dr. Hannah Sizemore is a planetary scientist based there. <laughs> Sorry, please call me Hannah because it makes me feel a little too grown up to be called Dr. Sizemore. Um... In the strikingly rural town, really a trip back in time, Hannah is doing innovative research about ice on Mars. We are smack dab in the middle of the National Radio Quiet Zone, which is a 1,300 square mile area where radio transmissions of all kinds are restricted. Hannah's an adjunct researcher at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Greenbank. Using massive radio telescopes, researchers are listening to galaxies billions of light years away, searching for clues on how the Milky Way was formed. The emissions from these galaxies are so faint, and the equipment needed to hear them is so sensitive that cell phones can interfere. So they're banned. So basically, fixed transmitters are very limited here. So we don't have television towers that are directed toward the observatory. Um, Even radio stations are somewhat limited in the directionality and power of their transmissions. Cell towers are extremely limited and placed strategically in the topography. And then there are even restrictions on local Wi-Fi. In the old days, they even limited people having microwaves in their homes and things like that. So in modern America, we're sort of a a special little pocket of radio quiet. Hannah grew up here, and her father was a park superintendent. And so we actually lived on a large state park. You know, fantastic scenery, trees, animals, um, amazing night skies. It was a fairy tale childhood, basically. Infatuated with space and stars and Carl Sagan as a young girl, Hannah left to go to college, got her PhD, and ended up working at NASA in Silicon Valley, while her husband, a software engineer, worked at Google. Then they had identical twins and decided to move back. She says you couldn't possibly have lived two greater extremes in their digital lives. Yes, and that is a real difference, in that they are having a very different experience than um, their peers everywhere else. That was nine years ago. My children are both 10 years old, and um, lots of people are dealing with issues of, you know, cell phones and how much social media they're allowing their children to experience and things like that at this age. It's absolutely not an option for my kids. Uh, They have iPads at home, but um, because we live in a place where this stuff, its functionality is limited, 
they have a really different relationship to it than you would expect. It's like a special treat. They ask, can they use it? It only works when they're at a place that has Wi-Fi, which is very far from the area where we work and they go to school. They have the kind of growing up experience that nobody's had since the 80s, basically. Hannah Sizemore says that she and her husband both still have Silicon Valley-type jobs, using high-speed fiber optic lines to the outside world. But here, they're not just 3,000 miles away. It's a world away. When I moved back here, I thought I was doing a short-term thing um, to have my children near their grandparents for a while, to have cheaper daycare and free after-hours childcare, and that we would do it for a little while, and then we would move back to the world. You know, we talk about (laughs) the outside, sort of like the Shakers did. (laughs) Move back to the real world. But, you know, I'm still here nine years later. I do like that turning things off is an option. You know, even though I'm sitting in a world-class research facility. So, you know, it's really quite lovely. It has let me combine two parts of my life that I never thought I could. Um, So I am living the dream, but, but I remind myself of that all the time. Hannah and I first talked back in March, and I wondered how the pandemic had changed life in Greenbank. Hannah's house is outside the 10-mile radius of the observatory, so I knew she had online access at home. But she's been in my thoughts. So hi, Hannah. How are things over in Greenbank? Well, my family has been pretty isolated in our home. Our Skype call started with the sad news that she'd been hit with what was likely the virus only a few weeks after our interview. You know, I was completely incapacitated, struggling to breathe. Night after night, we were debating if we were going to the emergency room. I had to, like, sort out how to walk normally again afterward. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Although she couldn't get tested for weeks, she Skyped with a researcher friend in Cambridge who was working in an ICU and said she was a classic case. And then we had the very odd thing happen that we opened things up a little bit and had some contact with some friends and extended family. And then we got sick again. No. We went through the entire progression of it again in July. Not as bad for me that time. Worse for the kids. When Hannah first got sick, the school shut down and they struggled to organize a crude virtual learning system. It was mostly pen and paper with some limited internet. It was a real problem here getting students uh, to be able to actually do the online activities. And with a lot of parents having to travel out of the county to work and having to juggle kids to grandparents who are at higher risk for the virus, I mean, it's it's a little bit of a chaotic communication situation. But Hannah Sizemore still believes it's been far easier to be in lockdown in the Allegheny Mountains of West Virginia than if she and her family lived in an urban area. And so the economic crisis and the lockdown have really reinforced the reasons that we came here. Yeah, so maybe there's, you know, this is a big kind of de-urbanization phenomenon we're seeing the beginning of now. Well, I would certainly invite uh, anybody who's tired of Silicon Valley or (laughs) L.A. or, you know, the East Coast megapolis uh, to consider Pocahontas County, West Virginia. (laughs) It's a lovely place. And we actually, um, we need people. People are our big export. Hannah, thank you so much for taking the time to catch up with us again. 
Thank you. It's been nice to talk to other grownups. <laughs> I think that's the way a lot of parents are feeling these days. <laughs> Dr. Hannah Sizemore. We all have different experiences of being offline or unplugged or disconnected, whatever you want to call it. Until the pandemic is under control, we can't fully go back to that life. But I want to, desperately. The digital space as we know it was created with the promise of worldwide interconnection. But that promise is tempered by what it's doing to our psyches. So we look forward to the day when we can spend more time with friends, more time in nature, and less time connected to the online world. If we can do that, we might just come out more human on the other side. Look, I don't get to decide should this exist, and neither does this show. Our goal is to inspire you to ask that question and the intriguing questions that grow from it. I think with digital sequestration, the real question is like, is it possible? <laughs> you know, I have a smartphone, but I also walk by roughly a thousand screens every time I leave the house. I want to throw my phone out the window multiple times a day. So this seems like a dream to me. Just the, the automatic reaching that you can find yourself on your phone before you realize it. That's, that's the thing. You lose your brains and you can miss things that are important, more important than doing on your smartphone. We've become used to having all these answers and we have lost our sense of amazement about that. You know, if you're in prison, if you're working at Starbucks, if you're on a factory line, you are digitally sequestered. And it is not a luxury, it's not a treat. Like the younger members of our family who grew up with a different sense of what it meant to have their phone with them, it would be similar to asking us to not have like a pad and a pencil. Agree? Disagree? You might have perspectives that are completely different from what we've shared so far. We want to hear them. To tell us the questions you're asking, go to shouldthisexist.com, where you can record a message for us. And join the Should This Exist newsletter at shouldthisexist.com. I'm Katerina Fake. Should This Exist is a Wait What original. The series is produced with generous support of Omijar Network, a social change venture working to ensure technology is safe, fair, and compassionate, and a world in which individuals have the social, economic, and democratic power to thrive. The series is produced by Mary Beth Kirshner. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Robin Wise is our technical director. Ben Hicks is recording engineer for Disher Sound. Danielle Roth is our assistant producer. Catherine Winter, consulting editor. And Alex Berg, our scriptwriter. Music and sound design by Mark Phillips. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Our executive producer is June Cohen. Special thanks to Darren Triff, Sarah Sandman, Emily McManus, Anna Pizzino, Christina Gonzalez, Katie Clark Gray, and Adam Heiner. Visit shouldthisexist.com to find the transcript for this episode. And don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps other people find the show.